Hey guys, and welcome to today's book review on the Unknown Friends podcast. You have tuned into episode 34 of season two this week, and I'm delighted you've joined me today. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you ever want to learn more about me and my work as a playwright, just visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com, which is linked in today's episode description. You can also become a supporter of the Unknown Friends podcast on our Patreon page, where you can access an exclusive news feed, bonus episodes, and even free books. So if you're interested, the web address for that is simply patreon.com slash unknownfriends. So today's book review is the first in a series of episodes we're starting on the podcast featuring The Chronicles of Narnia by the incomparable C.S. Lewis. As you know, if you're a seasoned Unknown Friends listener, C.S. Lewis is my favorite author of all time, and I could not be happier to be discussing the seven books in the Chronicles over the next several weeks. These books were an essential part of my childhood um, spiritual development, and they have stuck with me. They've honestly become a part of me. So that now, even as an adult, I still think about many things in the terms that Lewis taught me through the Chronicles of Narnia. So today, of course, we're starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, some people prefer to take the Narnia books in order of their internal chronology. So starting with The Magician's Nephew, which tells of Aslan's creation of the land of Narnia. But personally, I think the best way to approach the Chronicles is in the order that they were published, especially if you're new to the books, but even if you're familiar with them. The Magician's Nephew and The Horse and His Boy, which are the only two that were, so to speak, out of order when they were published, just make so many references to people and events in books that were published earlier, namely The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that I think it makes sense to wait to read those two books until later. So, in short, I will be following publication order in this series on the podcast. Now, I'm not going to go into C.S. Lewis's full biography, since he is so well-known and we have discussed him multiple times before on the podcast when I reviewed The Screwtape Letters earlier this season in episode 10, as well as last year when I discussed Till We Have Faces and The Great Divorce in episodes 1 and 30 of season 1. So just... To remind you very briefly, Lewis was born in 1898 and died in 1963, and he was an atheist as a young man but became a Christian in 1931. He spoke and wrote extensively, especially in the 1940s and 50s, and he married Joy Davidman in 1956. And of course, he taught English literature at the University of Oxford for almost 30 years, from 1925 to 54. And then he continued his teaching career at Cambridge from 1954 until just a few months before his death in 1963. Now, I sometimes tend to forget that the Chronicles of Narnia are among his latest works, published from 1950 to 56. And I think that's just because the Chronicles were the first books that I ever read from C.S. Lewis. So for some reason, 
well, by association, I guess, I tend to think of them as being among some of the first books he ever wrote. But that's completely wrong. The majority of his other books and essays were written before Narnia, and he was already in his 50s by the time he wrote the Chronicles. So, to put them in the context of his other works, his most recent publications before he started the Chronicles were That Hideous Strength, the conclusion of his Space Trilogy, and The Great Divorce, both published in 1945, as well as his nonfiction book Miracles, which was published in 1947. Also, in the middle of the publication of his seven Narnia books, he published Mere Christianity, which of course was based on radio talks he had given ten years before during World War II. But there are some interesting overlaps between concepts in Mere Christianity and the Chronicles. Obviously, this is somewhat expected in any two books by the same author, but I think the overlaps also somewhat point to the fact that he was collecting and revising those radio talks for mere Christianity at the same time as he was writing the Narnia stories. And then as he concluded the Chronicles of Narnia in 1955 and 56, he published Surprised by Joy, his partial autobiography recounting his conversion to Christianity, and then his last and quite possibly best work of fiction, Till We Have Faces. So in many ways, the Chronicles of Narnia, published one book a year from 1950 to 1956, came at the peak of his career. But the inspiration for Narnia, at least for the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, had come from a variety of sources much earlier. Famously, C.S. Lewis himself described the original inspiration for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in this way in his little essay titled It All Began with a Picture. He wrote, The lion all began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. This picture had been in my mind since I was about sixteen. Then one day, when I was about forty, I said to myself, let's try to make a story about it. So that original image he'd had for most of his life. And then, as I understand it, he is referring to some things that happened in 1939, when he talks about deciding one day to try to write a story about the image of the fawn in a snowy wood. So in 1939, children were being evacuated from London and from other cities to live temporarily in the country so as to be safer from the Nazi air raids early in World War II. And three little girls were brought to live for a while in C.S. Lewis's home, called the Kilns. And apparently, um, during that time, he gained a greater knowledge of and appreciation for children, getting to interact a bit more with kids than he usually did as a bachelor and a professor. And so a few weeks after the girls arrived, he sat down and started trying to write a children's story about some kids evacuated during the war, and he wanted to also use that picture in his head of the fawn with an umbrella. And this story that he began trying to write started with a sentence which will be somewhat familiar if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it's also distinctly different. He wrote, This book is about four children whose names were Anne, Martin, Rose, and Peter. 
but it is most about Peter, who was the youngest. So, of course, in the book that he ultimately wrote, we recognize the four siblings, two girls and two boys, with the youngest being somewhat the focus, or at least the leader when it comes to finding the land of Narnia. But all the names were changed in the end, except Peter, who became the eldest instead of the youngest. So I I just think it's fun to see which details fell away and which endured from this early draft compared to the final version. In that same essay, It All Began With a Picture, Lewis adds a comment about what eventually brought the story together. He says, At first I had very little idea how the story would go. But then, suddenly, Aslan came bounding into it. I think I had been having a good many dreams of lions about that time. Apart from that, I don't know where the lion came from or why he came. But once he was there, he pulled the whole story together, and soon he pulled the six other Narnian stories in after him. Now, we don't know precisely when Lewis wrote the bulk of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We know he began the first version of it in 1939, and he completed the final version in 1949, but it's not clear when all the writing happened in between. Some sources make it sound like he worked on, and maybe even completed, an early draft of the story fairly quickly, but was dissatisfied with it, um, and then returned to the idea years later and wrote the story we know in the late 1940s. That is somewhat speculative. The point is, um, it was definitely well underway by late 1948, early 1949, and he finished the manuscript by the end of March 1949. And although it wasn't published till October 1950, in May of 49, he gave a copy to his goddaughter, Lucy Barfield, to whom he had dedicated the book. In fact, I should just mention the Barfield family quickly. Lucy's father, Owen Barfield, was a close friend of C.S. Lewis, and a really important writer and thinker, brilliant, and very influential on Lewis and Tolkien and the intellectual world in general. I wish I knew more about him than I do, but his work sounds fascinating, and I would like to read some of what he wrote. Owen Barfield's philosophy and theology had a profound effect on Lewis, and he was actually instrumental in helping Lewis ultimately convert to Christianity. They were friends for over 40 years from the time they were both young men, and as I said, Lewis was godfather to Barfield's daughter, Lucy. Um, And Lewis also dedicated the third Narnian book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, to Owen Barfield's younger son, Geoffrey. Anyway, so that's that's a really important connection in Lewis's life, and I won't go into it any further than that, but the dedication of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Lucy Barfield really is just a small sign of what was a very meaningful connection between Lewis and the Barfields throughout his life. So... I won't go into too much detail about the plot of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So many people, and I'm guessing the majority of you, my listeners, have read this book. Um, Perhaps it's been a few years, but the Chronicles of Narnia have just been so immensely 
popular and widespread that I think most of us are familiar with the stories, at least to some extent. Uh, and this is especially true of the first book in the series. But in case you're not very familiar with the story, or it's just been a while, this is the basic setup of the plot. Four siblings named Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are sent to live in a big house in the country during the London air raids. And as they're exploring the house, Lucy, the youngest, steps into a large wardrobe. And as she keeps walking further and further into it, she finds herself entering a magical world, a snowy forest inhabited by strange mythical creatures and talking animals. She meets a fawn, or a, a satyr, more or less, from Greek mythology, who is named Tumnus, and invites her over for tea. And when she eventually returns home, going back through the open wardrobe into the big country house, she tries to tell her siblings about her adventure, but they don't believe her. So, of course, Lucy is very disappointed. Well, later, Edmund finds his way into Narnia through the wardrobe, and he also has a little adventure there in the snowy forest, but one quite different from Lucy's. The first person he meets is not the hospitable Mr. Tumnus, but a strange, powerful woman named Jodis, who is called by some the Queen of Narnia and by others the White Witch. At first, Edmund is frightened by this woman, but she soon softens and offers him a warm drink and whatever food he would like, and he asks for Turkish delight, which is a kind of uh, kind of gummy candy, a little bit like a gumdrop, usually with um, a floral flavor like rose or orange flower, or sometimes with, with nutty or fruity flavors. Wouldn't be the first thing I would ask for if I could demand absolutely any kind of food from a magical queen. But Edmund likes Turkish delight, and that's what he gets, a big box of it, which he then proceeds to eat greedily the whole thing, as the strange woman asks him all about his family and how he got into Narnia. Well, the long and short of it is, Edmund falls under the spell of the White Witch's enchanted Turkish delight, so that even when he finishes eating what she offered him, he craves more. And ultimately, he starts becoming kind of a nasty person. And then a while after he gets back out of Narnia into his own world, it happens one day that all four of the siblings tumble into Narnia together by accident, and then Peter and Susan realize they had been wrong all along to doubt Lucy's original story. But once they've all gotten into Narnia, there's kind of no turning back. First of all, they discover that Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, has been arrested by the White Witch for being friendly to Lucy on her earlier visits. And so now the children feel that they ought to try to do something to help him, since he is suffering on their account. Then they meet a couple of beavers who give them help and advice, and from them, the children first hear about the lion Aslan, the true lord of Narnia, though he hasn't been in Narnia for years and years. The white witch has held sway over the land for a century, 
keeping all of Narnia in an eternal winter. But the beavers assure the children that Aslan will put all to right when he returns, and there have already been rumors of his imminent return. But meanwhile, Edmund has pretty much sided with the witch, unbeknownst to his siblings, and so there are disagreements and dangers the children must overcome before the story can have a happy ending. So that's a brief overview of the story and the main characters. And now I just want to talk about a few of the many thematic elements that I have found to be particularly meaningful and enduring. This Turkish delight business. Even if it doesn't sound very appetizing, C.S. Lewis is onto something here, something extremely important. The narrator of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe describes the Turkish delight in this way. The queen knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. Isn't that the nature of, well, of sinful pleasures? As C.S. Lewis points out in The Screwtape Letters, all pleasure was created by God, but the enemy of our souls does his best to twist those pleasures into unhealthy, destructive things, and so often manages to enslave us to these pleasures that are really tragic shadows of the real pleasures God created. But we all too easily fall for the shadows and are ultimately destroyed by them when we could freely have the real thing if we wanted. Edmund gets a taste of Turkish delight and the craving only grows the more he eats. It's tasty in a way, yes, but not satisfying. In fact, the more he eats, the more he wants. As Lewis says through the mouth of his character Screwtape, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And although Lewis might be more explicit about it in the Screwtape letters, he's demonstrating many of the same principles in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He demonstrates the true nature of pleasures, both of real pleasure and of its twisted shadow. If you're familiar with the writer and teacher Jonathan Rogers, he has written a wonderful book called The World According to Narnia, and in it he illuminates many of the Christian themes at work in the Chronicles, and he has great insight into Edmund and the witch's Turkish delight. He points out that once Edmund tastes the Turkish delight and begins greedily giving in to his appetite, that opens the door for him to much worse behavior, selfishness, and dishonesty, and pride, and some cruelty, even. That's the nature of temptation. You give in to one thing, and it's like the opening of a floodgate. So I can't communicate all of Jonathan Rogers' insights, but they're very good, and his book is certainly worth reading, The World According to Narnia. 
I'll probably be referencing it more throughout our later episodes on the Chronicles. So, from a young age, reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I began to internalize these truths about temptation and sin that Lewis was teaching me through the story of Edmund and the Witch. But the story develops these ideas about pleasure in other powerful ways too. Ultimately, bad, twisted pleasures are shown to be not only unsatisfying and destructive, but just plain ugly, distasteful, thoroughly undesirable. And this is really, really important. You can teach kids that right is right and wrong is wrong. You can even show them that right is healthy and beneficial and wise, and wrong is the opposite. But I I believe it takes things to another level when you show them that right is beautiful and delightful and exciting, and wrong is ugly and revolting and boring. You can mentally understand that evil is bad and dangerous, but still think it looks attractive. You must see the reality of evil as a hideous, disgusting, repulsive thing. And you must see good as it truly is. What is good is also lovely and fulfilling and full of adventure and true pleasure. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe portrays this reality in a way that I personally have never recovered from. Not not that I wasn't taught the truth about good and evil from my parents and my church, but stories do have a unique power to captivate and convince you of things. At least they do for me. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe helped me see evil as ugly, and it helped me see good as beautiful. And ultimately, it connects what is good to God himself, which I think always must be done if you're a Christian storyteller trying to tell the truth about the world. Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the seas, gave me as a child an imaginative image of God that showed me both how powerful and how gentle he is, how just and compassionate he is, how worthy he is of our devotion. Rereading the book this year, I was honestly wonderstruck all over again reading about Aslan. C.S. Lewis wrote about Aslan to help us love God more, and he most certainly succeeded. I will leave you with one of my many favorite passages from the book, which comes about a third of the way through the story, and it's the moment when the four siblings first hear about the lion Aslan. They've just met Mr. Beaver, and he signals them to gather close around him, and then he whispers, They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And then the narrator continues with this. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream 
that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays, or the beginning of summer. So poor Edmund feels horror at the name of Aslan because he's already chosen to side with Aslan's enemies, and his desire for more of the witch's enchanted food has spoiled any pleasure he could find in real joys. But the other three, they can experience the true delight that comes at the name of Aslan. Oh, there's so much more I could say about this little book, but at least we get several more weeks in the Chronicles, so we're not done talking about Narnia yet, not by a long shot. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I would love to hear your thoughts about the story. What is your favorite passage from the book? or a theme or character that has always resonated with you. Feel free to message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon to share your thoughts or questions. I hope you join me again next week for book two in the Chronicles, Prince Caspian, The Return to Narnia, featuring the return of our four favorite children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, as well as the appearance of quite a few new characters. And of course... Aslan is at the center of everything in Prince Caspian, even if he's often unseen. So come back next week if you want to get in on that discussion in episode 35. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and to learn more about me and my plays, simply visit my website, kittywhamproductions.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.